Because although my story we're going to figure out here really quickly has a lot of drugs, has a lot of hopelessness, has a lot of stuff to it. The primary focus for me and what my life stands for is I want everybody to know that intrinsically they have a tremendous amount of worth and what stands in between them bringing that to life and where they're at now is typically guilt and shame. And it's all bullshit. Find and learn from people who lived it wherever you get podcasts. Search it using all one word. Learn from people who lived it. Welcome to another episode of Learn from People Who Lived It. Can you believe that we are closing in on 90 episodes and 20,000 downloads? And I have you to thank for it. Appreciate that. Uh, You know, I used to live in a world where I, I was always trying to predict the future, always trying to be three steps ahead so that I would be prepared for my radio shows. And one of the greatest liberations of leaving the radio show has been to just show up to an interview expecting nothing and just seeing what happens. And in today's interview, which I apologize for its length, it is long, but there is so much going on in this interview, I just couldn't find something that I wanted to chop out. I've never met this gentleman before today. His name is Kyle. He was a meth junkie. He faced two life sentences. He walked out at 35 years old with no college degree and then went to Silicon Valley and became the VP inside a $2 billion publicly traded company. Things are good for Kyle now. And we're about to jump in to his story today on Learn From People Who Lived It. My name is Kyle Dean Houston. There's a a three-part name and my age is 52. Kyle, what story are you here to share with us today? I am here to share snippets of my life story, the tragedy and the beauty of the whole the whole transformation, um, primarily from the time I got hooked on meth until I until today. How's that sound? That sounds great. Who do you hope hears this? I hope anybody that's wrestling with being who they are, who who might feel shame and guilt and aren't living to their fullest potential or aren't living a happy life because they're always hiding. Because although my story we're gonna figure out here really quickly has a lot of drugs, has a lot of hopelessness, has a lot of stuff to it. The primary focus for me and what my life stands for is I want everybody to know that intrinsically they have a tremendous amount of worth and what stands in between them bringing that to life and where they're at now is typically guilt and shame. And it's all bullshit. I can't wait to jump into this conversation. Welcome to Learn From People Who Lived It, everyone. I'm Matthew Blades. This, of course, is Kyle. And we, uh, we've we never met each other. Well, we've had a conversation before, but we've never spent FaceTime. And so there's going to be a lot of questions, maybe back and forth between the two of us as we get to know each other a little bit. Um, Kyle, we are going to jump into all of the stuff that you just mentioned. But what we want to do on this podcast up front is to start with the hope and start with where you're at right now. Um, Before we get into all the doom and the gloom and the things that led up to it, give people a snapshot of what your life is like right now with your wife, with your two kids, with your business, you know, in general. How are things for Kyle right now? I, I, I don't want this to be trite or unbelievable, but I don't know that I've ever been happier. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I live a, a fantastic life. The bills are paid, the bills are paid and then some, right? And I have two baby girls that 
they're not babies. They're 10 and 12, but they'll always be my babies that still love me and still think I'm the best thing ever. And I have a wife that is in my corner no matter what happens. So I, I couldn't be happier. Um, as far as the business goes, I, I don't typically talk about it, but uh, we're we're growing probably by five to six hundred percent year over year uh, with real estate investments and everything else that we've got going on. But my primary focus now is to take this experience and figure out how I do my part to change my little piece of the world. And, and that's that's something that we're constantly honing in on. Right. So I've got next phase of my life. Let's make sure we've got a nice little nest egg and we can live off that. But next phase of my life is not about money. It's about influence. It's about making sure that what I'm putting into the world aligns with all the crap that I was forced to learn at very trying times. Right. Let's let's give this purpose. Right. Let's give this pain and this anguish and these tears all purpose. And the only way I can think of is is to uh, to serve. I'm going to jump right in and start talking about addiction and some of the things that that you experienced leading up to this. And I want to start off by saying, anybody who's an addict, whether it's drugs or alcohol, I really implore you to read the Deepak Chopra book on addiction. Um, what I love about Deepak Chopra and his assertion of addiction is how beautiful those lost souls are. They're ultimately searching. They're looking for something. They're trying to get out of their pain. They just keep grasping for all the wrong things. That's that's the problem, right? And that's that's where the addiction piece comes in. But the fact remains that most addicts are really truly trying to find a way out of their own head, their own system, their own problems. And they just reach for the wrong ingredient. And you certainly relate to that. I'm a former alcoholic who set down alcohol in 2006 when I realized how much it was going to screw my family up. Um, for you, it was meth. And, yeah. you know, that's one of those words that most people are, they just hear about. They don't really understand it. And maybe they watch Breaking Bad and they feel like they have a little bit of a grasp or something. But meth is one of those drugs that just kind of sounds scary Sounds like it's not going to be have a happy ending. And so let's jump down the rabbit hole, man. I mean, tell me, tell me a little bit about how you got to, to meth. Was there something leading up to it? Did you just jump right into the deep end of the pool? Like, give me, give me a snapshot there, Kyle. I, I mean, in some ways I, I jumped into the deep end of the pool, but that seems to be the story of my life, right? That is, it, it doesn't matter if it's business. It doesn't matter if it's sports. It doesn't matter. Like, I'm just that kind of guy. I was that kind of kid. But here's what I, I want to make a comment about addiction. And, and I have not read um, uh, the book that you suggested that we read. But everybody is addicted, right? It, it may not be alcohol. It may not be meth. It may not be something that's necessarily overtly harmful, right? They're seemingly. But we're all, because of the human condition, tied into desire and want and all of these things that get us attached to stuff. Mm -hmm. And we're always trying to escape. So I think the weakest argument that anybody could ever make is I'm, I'm just not that kind of personality. I don't get addicted to things and it really isn't fair and it doesn't allow them to grow. So what I would love is for everybody to quit looking at addicts and junkies and all this other stuff as them and us and start to realize how much of that compulsive behavior do I have inside me? 
And if I released it, how much bigger and better could I be? Because I went through hell, right? I, I've come out on the other side and I'm a completely different species. But, and it's not like I got back to where I was. Like now it's about love and oneness and all of these things that are very expanded from anything that I ever would have imagined. And I think people that have never been addicted and don't have real scars never get to the pinnacle of what they could be because they're like, oh, I'm not that kind of a person. So even though that wasn't the question, I just, I have comments about this with everybody, right? So anyway, back to what you really asked, my friend, uh, probably an addict before meth ever came into my world, right? I, I had a tumultuous childhood. It, for a lot of people, it was very, in a lot of ways, big fish in a small pond. I grew up in a town of 4,600 people. I was the football player. I was the wrestler. I had all the attention and that was cool. I had a stepdad that really didn't like me in the beginning, right? So there was a lot of abuse and trauma and all that other crap, not blaming them for the drug addiction, but weed at 13, alcohol at 13 really seemed magical to me. Um, LSD at 19, cocaine, crack cocaine at 17. I mean, but none of it was addicted. It was just very destructive behavior. When meth came around, I, it, it was almost like my soul was looking for it, right? Oh, this is what I was looking for. Mm. And then I jumped into the deep end. I met somebody that was one degree away from a cook I was getting uncut stuff overnight. She really liked me. And I went downhill. And in a two-year period of time, I went from being introduced to uncut meth to being one of the biggest meth cooks in Kansas City. And it was a really crazy ride. <laughs> what does meth do to you uh, for people that don't understand? Uh, so uh, you you may not know this, but I wrote a book. Uh, it's, it's a memoir called Patchwork Junkie. And, okay. and I got I to gotta, I gotta shamelessly plug this because these do want to know all about meth and what it does. It's first person narrative. And I talk about when I explain meth to people that have never done it and even people that have done cocaine, they try to associate, oh, I've had this feeling meth. It's not so much what it is. It's what it's not. And what it's not is any amount of shame, pain, guilt, all the things that burden us and people that have gone through traumatic childhoods and, you know, whatever it is, they have this stuff that resonates in the background at all times and meth instantly erases that, hmm. right? So you can disguise it as euphoria, but it's not so much that it's just the absence of all of these negative feelings and pressure and I'm not good enough and I can't get over this, all of that goes away. And, and it's crazy. It's because that stuff's still there. <laughs> yeah. So I want to go back to your childhood a little bit because yeah. clearly, you know, that's, that's probably why you felt the need to escape and, and get away from things and who can blame anybody, right? When, and we've had this conversation on our podcast a number of times. It's like your mom brought a man into the picture who wasn't even your dad. And this guy seemingly had a hold on you and made your life harder. And so 
as you for I want to talk about beliefs, okay? So yeah. as you're coming up and you're a teenager and you know on one hand you're having some accolades at school and you know wrestling and football and there's some positive pieces of your life, going home must feel like I, that's not what I want. I don't want to go home. That's where the pain is. That's where the problems are. And so would you mind speaking to the set of belief systems that got planted into your head as a result of, of some of that abuse and some of that upbringing? So I have a really hard time with that because I, I want you to know that uh, he, he, this, this was my dad, right? So he wasn't my biological father, but we, we paired up at like four and a half when I was four and a half years old. Okay. So this is a guy that taught me how to fish. This guy taught me how to tie my shoes, ride a bike, like spent a lot of time with me, but very intolerant. And I, and I know now that it's because of his upbringing. Of course. And it was their upbringing. And you, right. This is generational shit that we all kind of, it, by the way, can you cuss on this? We I don't can know. say shit all day long. It's fine. But. <laughs> but, but, but the thing is, is that this is a really, really good human being, just a bad pairing with me. And he had to grow up too. Right. So um, I think the real trauma happened when my biological father left at three, I think like, and, and so what I got from that is uh, that I'm not good enough. Mm -hmm. to keep my dad around. Oh, wow. That one hurts my feelings. <clears throat> Sorry, man. I didn't expect that. Um, <laughs> so I got that. <clears throat> and, uh, and I think that played into everything. And, and look, my mom's not off the hook. She was a mess too. She shouldn't have been <laughs> raising kids. She was bipolar before those sort of things were diagnosed, but I love her and she loves me. But um, I never felt there was enough attention that I could possibly get. The entire world could be looking at me and it wasn't enough. And so that was what I carried into adolescence and adulthood and still at the age of 52. Like, have I done anything? If, if, you know, if, if everybody in the room isn't laughing and happy, I'm not doing my job. What am I? Worth? And intellectually, I know that's not real right? Or even sustainable, but viscerally, I feel it. And then of course, there was one other thing that my stepdad did implant. Um, he would call me a liar a lot. And so I know I'm not a liar, but I'm always feeling like people think something bad about me. And I catch that every once in a while at the age of 52. And I go back in time and I say, Ooh, that's what I was doing there. Oh, that's why I overcompensated for this relationship. And so those are two very distinct things that shape me. I would say that to hopefully people, you know, have listened to enough of my podcast to understand that these beliefs, then they, that this is how they play out. They play out in a way where it's really destructive. Yeah. Um, you know, when my, so my, my father passed away at, when I was 23, he dropped dead in front of me of a heart attack and I tried to save his life and I couldn't. And it was incredibly traumatic. But in that moment, the belief system that got set up for me was that I didn't know enough. I didn't know enough to save my father. Mm. And then for the next 20 years, that would play out in my life in a million different ways. I would be in a meeting and I would know better. But that voice in my head would say, you don't know enough. And so I would yeah. shut down. 
And I can only imagine that for you, you you wrestled with this your whole life. And there must have been, even though this guy was great and taught you to fish and you guys have a good relationship maybe now that you're working on and all of the things, there had to have been pieces growing up where you were like, damn it. Like, why did my dad leave? Why did I get this guy? What's happening? And you're trying to navigate that as a little boy. And then seemingly because your mom isn't able to offer the kind of support that you need, you're not getting that from her too. So I want to ask you about on the way up, were you lucky enough to have good friends who had good parents? Were you lucky enough to have good teachers who saw you? Um, Will you walk through a little bit of your surroundings? Sure. So I, I grew up in a town where the entire town raises you. Right. Yeah. So it, you know, 4,600 people, the middle of America, Higginsville, Missouri. It, it's everything you think it is as soon as I say Higginsville. And so there were lots of people, lots of people that were very nurturing and loving. Um, not necessarily my family. I, I had that too. You know, my, my grandparents thought I was the best thing ever that God ever created. And, and I was surrounded by that. Right. Um, and then coaches who played a, a, a such a big part in who I was, if it wasn't for them and that town, I wouldn't have made it through prison in the way that I did. Like when I fight and I don't want to jump to prison, but when I was in prison, the game I played was let's see if we can hold on to Kyle. You know, I don't know how long this is going to be, but however long it is, let's hold on to Kyle. Cause it's very easy in that environment to start slipping away and then not recognize yourself anymore. And if it wasn't for my coaches, if it wasn't for the words of my art teacher, if it wasn't for visits with my grandma, if it wasn't like, and these aren't people that were in my life then because nobody knew what had happened to Kyle, but the memory of them and the stuff that they instilled got me through it all. Gave me the strength. Did you ever, um, show up to family functions high or drunk. I mean, was, or yeah. were you like super careful and trying to be like pretty functional with it all? Uh, I'm, I'm looking back on it. I, I think most people would say I was pretty functional. Like, like, okay, so let's qualify something. I, even if alcohol didn't exist at 16, I wanted to be in trouble. Right. It's just I, I want to not necessarily be in trouble, but if there was something that needed to be jumped or a swing or a rope that needed from five on, I'm the guy to do it. Right. So I was always doing crazy stuff. That's why I was good in football. It's why I went, you know, as hard as I could on the mat. And it's just the way I'm driven. It's why I'm successful now. And for all the reasons I shouldn't have been right. But I, uh, with alcohol, um, I think I was very functional. I think I was still the, the same guy. Did I show up drunk? You got to understand in a town of 4,600 people that was primarily established by Germans and Irish people, we were all drunk, right? So <laughs> we were getting our dad's beers from the keg at four, right? right. The first drink. So nobody cared about that. But um, so it was easy to hide. Right. But, yeah, I went to functions high. I went to Christmas high smoking weed. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and, and what I love about what you just said is, is something that Tony Robbins talks a lot about. He's like, you don't just get to declare all the bad stuff that your parents gave you. You, you, you have to own the good pieces of what it taught you as well. And, you know, like you just said, right, there, there was this thing for you, at least, where it made you more competitive. It, you wanted to be seen. You wanted attention. You wanted people to be like, boy, Good job, Kyle. Uh, you craved that as, as, as a kid, I'm sure. And that desire can bring out some exceptional things in people. There's no way around it. But it also brings with it that other that other side, which, you know, can be tough. And so where I'd love to go next is how much of your using impacted just you and how much of your using impacted your people around you? Uh, well, to some degree. Uh, so, first of all, let's separate using. Right. Let's do pre that moment where I went off the deep end with meth. Before that and after that, because okay. using became, I was a junkie. So I want to be very clear. I wasn't just using meth. I was shooting up six to seven times a day with the intention of having an overdose, right? Because I thought that was my exit strategy. This gets pretty heavy. Yeah. So using before that was smoking a little weed. Every once in a while, we would, you know, do some LSD. I know I don't mean to say that so nonchalantly, but it was all fun. Right. It was like college stuff. Somebody would hey, I know where to get X. Right. That affected, uh, of course, to some degree, everybody. Right. Like Kyle didn't show up for two days. Where's he at? Oh, there he is. That's going to affect people. Mm. It certainly affected what I got accomplished. Yeah, I would drop out of everything. I dropped out of college. I dropped I went into the Navy for 10 months and you know, I got out of the Navy early and, you know, all that stuff because of the drugs, right? Because I didn't want to do what I didn't want to do. And so mildly affected, maybe to a lot of people a lot. The meth use, like when I went over the deep end, affected everybody, everybody, everybody. My mom thought I was dead for six months because I wasn't calling her. I had a girlfriend in Chicago, thought I had to be dead to go from talking every day to where the hell is he? Um, my son, who was four years old when it started, six years old when I got arrested, didn't have a daddy. I, I returned the favor from what my dad did to me. Uh, everybody, everybody. And, it, and in my little myopic world, I thought it was just me. I thought, okay, I'm endangering my life. And and there's always tomorrow, right? I'll, I'll I'll stay clean enough to go see somebody tomorrow or, or actually make a phone call and tomorrow never comes. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's the life I lived. And then when you're in prison, sobering up, realizing, Oh my God, this is what I've done to people. It's the worst time to go through that. I can't even imagine. And and you're in a position where you can't do much about it there. Right. Yeah. You burn every bridge. Who's going to want to hear it? Oh, sure. You're sorry. You know, <laughs> you need, you need money on your books and and you've got nobody to talk to, you know, sure. You're sorry. So there's nothing authentic about your apology or how much you love people or your tears. It's a really bad place to be. Even if it is authentic to them, it's like, sure, man. 
you know, whatever. Let me, ask you a drug, let me ask you a drug question. You know, with, with psychedelics and like LSD and some of the X, you know, there there's opportunity within those trips to to learn some things. Uh, some yeah. a lot of a lot of people have some incredible clarity when they when they do psychedelics. Um, psychedelics for some people are able to kind of unwire the addiction and they they get a they get a grip on it. Um, it sounds like for you, it really wasn't about learning anything. You were just sort of taking it to enhance the fun that you were. No, no. Uh, with the LSD, I, I was, a, I'm probably still a big fan of LSD. And, yeah. and if this is the wrong thing to say from a junkie. I tough shit. It's the way I tough am. Shit. Yeah. Uh, big fan of ayahuasca. Right. And so I, I think, I know for a fact ayahuasca under shaman care and orchestrated in a very specific way with integration and all those things will, will change somebody's life for good, all good. Right. Um, LSD. I think if you understood where it was coming from may have a similar sort of growth spurt, but now you get into these are street drugs, right. And the danger and the, the, the culture and all of those things. So I, when I did when I did LSD, it would start out as fun, but I would always want to move to a smaller group of people and have the deep conversations about consciousness. Yeah, and I didn't have those friends. Am I am I to assume you've had a few plant experiences that have helped you learn? And if so, what what did you learn, man? I'm fascinated by this stuff. Yeah. So my, <laughs> you're the first person I've talked about this. My, my ayahuasca experience is within the last uh, 14 months of my life. Right. Okay. So, so uh, I think it's a misnomer to say like the healing all happened, but I sorted out a bunch of shit, got to a point in my life. And then whether you believe this or not, it doesn't matter to me either, but uh, mother ayahuasca was calling to me. Right. So so now I want to go next phase. And for me personally, doing ayahuasca is not to necessarily work through past trauma or necessarily release something specific. Right. Because I think I have an OK life. It is what stands in the way. And this is this is really heavy. What stands in the way of where I'm at now and higher self tile. Why, why haven't I completely surrendered to, because I, because I am all about serving, right? I am all about, I've got this, this body of, of experience that's going to help tremendously, not incrementally, people that are suffering. And so what's stopping me? So in my intentions, we're always, you know, what am I afraid of? Like, what happens if I actually love everybody unconditionally? And so that's what I went into my ayahuasca experience wanting to figure out. And I'll tell you my last one, uh, which all my, you know, I, I went through three ceremonies in a weekend. And then recently I went through two ceremonies in a weekend, right? That's kind of the way it works. And this last time I won't get into the profound stuff that happened, but I think I get something new. Like I'm, and I'm ready to integrate it to a very high degree. So yeah. So keep an eye on me, man. 
<laughs> I, I love it. And, and, you know, here's the thing I, I, about, um, I try to communicate this effectively when you're an addict or when you're depressed or when you suffer from any of these things that can kind of get a grip on our brains and our minds and everything, it can, in a lot of ways, feel like you're in a room where you can't see doors, but then you see a door, but it doesn't have a handle. And then you'll see a window, but the window doesn't open up. And, and it can be really confusing to sit in this space and you're kind of like, why, why doesn't this door work? Like, I don't get it. It's worked before. It's not working now. And to me, this is the benefit of the plant medicine. The plant medicine seems to have this ability, and I've never done ayahuasca or any of these things, uh, but I'm certainly thinking about it very strongly. It, it has this ability to unlock the portals and it has this ability to like get you out of your own way so that you can make better choices. Was that your experience? I don't know that I would articulate it that way, but I wouldn't argue with you, right? Okay. But the way I would say it is for me, it it turned, and it, it has everything to do with your intentions, right? But for me, it turned the microscope back around on me, but not in a physical experience, in an emotional experience. So I'm seeing myself through emotions. I know this is bizarre, but I'm, I'm noticing very, like you would never think I was self-conscious. If you ever saw me parachute in the middle of a bunch of strangers, you would think, oh, that guy, he's got his shit in one bag and he's super confident. On ayahuasca, I'm self-conscious about literally everything. Mm. And so when I go in with my intention, what stands in the way? And all of a sudden I'm hyper self-conscious about everything. I start to think, hmm, right? So the microscope's been turned back around on me Forget your self-image. Here comes truth. Here's what you really feel and then amplifies these things. And it's never the answer you're looking for. Or, or let me say that better. It's never the answer you want. It's the answer you need, right? So you, that is the thing you've got to be prepared for because now you know it. Now you've got to implement it because you asked for it or it's just going to be a thorn in your side forever. So for you, since you've never done it, a, it sounds to me like you're here in the calling and B, make sure, make sure you realize that what you're going to get heavy, right? And it's, it, you need to use it. So don't, don't go in it willy nilly thinking it's, and you wouldn't, that it's going to be some cool acid trip. This is a spiritual awakening. And this is the first time I've had this conversation. My wife's probably in the other room cringing, wanting me to shut up about it. But it, it, dude, it is a spiritual awakening. I had one other experience that I would equate to it. And that was 12 months in solitary confinement, thinking I'm going to do 30 years of my life in prison. That was a spiritual awakening. The biggest move that I was ever able to make away from my spoon fed definitions of Christianity. And it was the catalyst to where I've gotten today. And then I would equate that moment with my experiences with ayahuasca. That's fantastic. I, I last summer I went to a um, a spiritual retreat because I had hit my version of rock bottom. And let me explain what I mean by that. I had had shingles, three panic attacks in a row. Super unhappy with my marriage. Super unhappy with my life. Super unhappy with my job. Like, did you know life? It was just on the suck train, and I couldn't. 
I just couldn't turn the corner. I couldn't figure out exactly what was happening. And I, I went to this spiritual retreat in Sedona. I spent four days there. I worked with therapists. I did tons of ceremonies. I did lots of different healing uh, that weekend. And for me, the spiritual awakening, uh, awakening that I had came in the form of an inner child ceremony, which I'm sure you know a little bit about. But for those who don't, when we have experiences as children, we kind of get locked into an operating system um, and we, we stay locked in that age, quite frankly, for all the things that look and uh, touch and taste and sound and feel like it, unless you really lean into wanting to fix it, you will literally act like a child in most of those cases. It's why you hear people say all the time, you know, he's acting like a child or she's acting. I mean, you, you are, you are acting like the child you were when the thing happened to you. <clears throat> so when I was able to unlock that Kyle and figure out that like, wow, God, I'm making all these decisions. Like my scared nine-year-old, yeah. I'm making all these decisions. Like my scared 23 year old, was a big, big spiritual awakening for me. And I mean, like shaking tremors, clear energy moving through me. Um, I had a really powerful water ceremony where I, I, I just did not want to get in the water and eventually did. I mean, it was really unbelievable. And so that's why when you talk about your spiritual experiences, I get excited to talk about mine because I want people to know that they're possible. I yeah. want you to know that you can be on the suck train. You can be hooked on meth or whatever it is. And you get a chance to make your life right again if you make the right choices to do so. And so you mentioned prison a couple of times. So let's hit that really fast, man, because that's something not everybody gets to experience. Um, was it terrifying for you to be in prison or were you in such a place where you were like, I don't know, maybe I'm safer here? Um, well, I mean, there was, there was, uh, so you asked me two questions and the answer is yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so terrifying. Let me, let me tee this up for you really quickly. I went from a, a extreme drug stupor. Like it, it's, it's amazing that I can put two sentences together, let alone accomplish what it is. Like I should be dead. Okay. A, I should be dead. I'm not B I should be stupid. Like I should stumble around with my words. I, I don't. Right. So I, I don't know how all this worked out, but I come in off a drug stupor. I'm sobering up from the stupor to starting to sober up. I feel safe. I'm not running from the cops anymore. I'm not worried to death. You know, I, I, I can sleep like nobody's trying to steal. Like, I mean, I was, you can imagine how many people wanted to, in the drug game, wanted to roll me because I'm the biggest, you know, meth cook at the time. And so I, I did feel safe. Then it starts setting in. I'm facing 30 years with no parole. I'm the biggest meth bust in the history of the little county that I grew up in. I'm not, nobody wants to talk to me. Nobody, I'm in a cell by myself 24 hours a day. Mm. And then the fear sets in. You know what I mean? I, I'm, oh my God, don't let this be my life, God. Like every day is a new reality. So yeah, scared to death. And then, I, and then I just, I turn to God. We'll get into that later maybe, right? But I, um, I tell everybody that even as scary as that was, 
the scariest two things I've ever done is walking out of prison and writing my book. Because, and we can get into that later too, but even as scary, and listen, here's another part you don't know, right? But I faced 30 years and for 17 of the 18 months that I was waiting to get sentenced, I thought I was going to get it. I thought, oh my God, they're not making deals with me. Like usually by now they come at me to save money in the county to make a deal. Let's plea, let's do all, none of that was happening. So I thought, oh my God, they, they deposed the police officer. They come back to me a month before sentencing and they say, hey, this case is weak. Police officer had no business pulling you over. We can get out of this. I felt culpable. I took a nine year sentence. But first of all, if I lost, I do 30. It, it was scary. I took a nine year sentence. I'm going to abbreviate this whole story. I get to a point. So in a nine year sentence on a B felony, you can do the math. I'm going to do a third of that. So I'm going to do three years. I'd already done 18 months. I've got another year and a half. I'm going to walk out. I'm zinned out. I had this experience with God. I'm going to bring goodness to the world. A month before I get paroled out of prison. So I go off to do my bit. A month before I get paroled out, the federal government comes in and says, we want to take our turn with him. Now I'm facing life. I get shipped off to Leavenworth. I'm right outside in a holding facility in Leavenworth and I'm facing life. And I thought, what part of the game is this? Same evidence, same everything. They called it a different name, so it's not the same crime. And I'm screwed. And so both of those moments were scary. Day one walking into the, the federal system was the United States of America versus Kyle Dean Houston or vice versa. However, that works. And I thought, holy shit, I'm in way more trouble than I thought. And life in the feds is until you're done breathing. So then I end up getting a seven year sentence and lots of stuff had to happen for that to happen. But I didn't know for four years of the seven that I did, I thought I was never getting out. Still the scariest thing I ever did was walk out of prison. <laughs> because you have to find out who you are without all that stuff. Right. Right. Like right. pure identity crisis. That's what we're talking about here. And, and where do you belong and who's going to love you and, and what's waiting for you out there? Like when you're dreaming of it in prison, and I wrote this in my book, when you're in the cozy climate controlled, you know, dreams of your head, everything's possible. Oh, I can get out and I can be the CEO of a company. I can get out and everybody's going to wrap their loving arms around me. I get out and I have children and everything. And then you walk out and you're like, shit, nobody cares. I got one person showing up to pick me up. Who do I talk to? I'm scared to death. Where do I work? You know, I mean, it's just super scary. Everybody's going to find out. And if the federal government and the state wanted to lock me up and throw away the key, that's what I'm really worth if people find out about my story. And that's ingrained. Mm. Like it doesn't matter how tough you are, how smart you are, that is not leaving the way you feel. Right. So you hide it. I, I went out to Silicon Valley and in 10 years, I went from a scared convict to a vice president inside a $2 billion publicly traded company. I killed it and never told a single person. Really? Really. I hid it from everybody. Now we'll get to the book being the second scariest thing I ever did. I hid it from everybody that worked for me. I hid it from everybody I worked for. I worked twice as hard 
because nobody was going to outwork me. I was always waiting for the day that they came to me. Hey, why didn't you tell us about your prison sentence? And I always wanted, well, look what I've done for the company. So I'm always working, work myself to stage four cancer. I went through stage really? two, yeah. And the least scariest thing I ever went through was stage four cancer. And so I, I ended up deciding one day, and this is at the age of 47, you know, this is July 17th, I think of 2017. I'm 47 years old and I'm, I'm dissolving a partnership, a, a bad partnership with a couple of buddies, right? And my wife and I are working our tails off and we've backed ourselves in a corner and I'm not leaving the business because I'm worried about things that aren't real. You know, I got a half a million dollars in a low interest bearing account. I've got plenty of money. And in my mind, I'm going to be unemployed and everybody's going to know and I can. And I wake up and I say, my entire life is an extension of prison. My entire life, every decision, every car I drive, every is based on fear. And I am, I'll be damned if I'm going to live any more life like that and started writing my fucking book that day. Yes. And I, I got to tell, I, it scares shit out of me too, but I got to tell everybody, I got to get this off my back and live a life. And so through the process of writing that book, I forgave everybody, including me. Right. And that was difficult. I cried my ass off writing it. I got to the other end of that thing and I was a completely different species. Let's uh, we need to have a talk right now about how you're able to forgive yourself, because the trap that a lot of people get into is, you know, they do something crappy. They do something they regret. They do something they wish they wouldn't have done. And then they just can't get over it. They can't. They, they feel like you said up almost up front 40 minutes ago. They feel so much guilt and shame about their situation that they literally they can't get over it. Kyle, how were you able to get over it? So the thing that I noticed in prison, and now we'll get to what you asked, I hope who would hear this. It, it would be the people that have guilt and shame standing in the way of self-forgiveness and okay. becoming who they are. But inside prison, in that cell, I went from what a piece of shit I am. How could I hurt my mom this way? How could I... How could I abandon my friends, my girlfriend, my kid? How could I ever do this to, I, I never knew I was doing it. Not, not as a cop out, right? This was all internal. This was all, this was all self-realization. And, and so from that moment to where it's like, I never realized I was hurting anybody when I was out there using drugs. I never realized the consequences I never saw it from anybody else's perspective. I was lacking awareness. Mm. And, it, and I started to expand from that epicenter. That is the difference between Gandhi and Hitler is awareness. And we cannot necessarily, we can be responsible for our actions to a degree, but when it comes to self-condemning forever, we got to get over it because people grow, people gain different awareness and you were just lacking the way you saw everything. It doesn't mean you're a piece of shit or an evil person. It means you saw it differently. Yeah. And so then I started to expand it even deeper than that. I started to realize that 
and I'm going to make this number up. It may be more, it may be less, but I will bet that 90% of the decisions you make every single day of your life is, is programming and the trauma and the shit that's happened in your past. And I'm not talking about blinking and breathing and all that involuntary stuff. I'm literally talking about big decisions, what you want to eat, what you want to drive, who you think you want to marry. All of that stuff is driven by things that you think are um, freedom of choice when it's really DNA, uh, uh, your environment, all these different things. And if you can't stop and realize all the shit that you've got to break through, to make legitimate, strong, your decisions, higher self decisions, then you're never going to forgive yourself. Right. Once you realize that you've got all of that, all of these things that are ingrained in the way you think, the way you act, the matrix that you've got to sift through just to make a single decision, you can start to say, okay, there's Kyle. And then there's this unnamed higher self. And this unnamed higher self is who I am. And he can forgive Kyle because Kyle's hopeless, right? Kyle is just at the mercy of all these other things. It's that pure soul spirit that's inside you that really offers the forgiveness for all the shit. So it's really identifying in a different way. Did I put you to sleep on this answer? Because no, not at all. Because it's it was my experience too, Kyle. I needed the higher self to come in and settle down those inner children, settle down the 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 the, the trauma exactly. that had happened in the past, you know. And I literally had a counselor say to me, "Moving forward, you are not the twenty three year old. You are you in your higher self." But you're also not the human, right? I mean, I'm sure there's atheists that listen to this, and and I'm, I'm mad respect for people's arguments. And quite frankly, atheists have a better argument anyway. It's easier, right? Because we're grounded in three-dimensional planes. I just don't buy it, okay? But 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 the thing is, is that even if you're an atheist uh, and you believe that there's a higher self and a lower self to some degree, right? You've got lizard brain and you've got something beyond that, then you can still utilize this school of thought that I just presented as how you forgive yourself. It is all about awareness, this is why I don't believe in capital punishment. This is why I don't believe in the death penalty. And it wouldn't matter. The argument is always, okay, what happens if somebody kills your daughter? Oh, somebody kills my daughter and I, yeah, I'm going to want to kill him. I, I'm not, I'm not backing out. I, I will want to kill him, but I don't think that as a law, we should want, we should have capital murder. We should have any of that sort of stuff because people are redeemable. Everybody's redeemable. And I don't give a shit who they are. Everybody is to some degree, uh, and I'm probably on a soapbox we don't need to be on right now, but to some degree, everybody is at the mercy of their past, right? Until you rise above that. And it's forgivable when you go deep, right? Now, on a personal level, don't take my babies. They mean everything sure. to me, but you, you get the point. And so I had to give myself the same, and I came to the conclusion that, 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 um, Capital punishment and the death penalty was wrong before I ever forgave myself. And then I had to come to the conclusion that I can forgive these nameless faces, people that have nothing to do with me and say they're redeemable, but I'm not giving myself the same slack. And so that was a very deep triggered like journey of, well, my God, I'm not, the, you know, the shit I did to my kids, the, the, the meanness I was to my own son 
the, the, you know, it's all this stuff that burdens me. If I can't forgive myself and yet I give everybody else the same leeway, then I'm not practicing what I preach. And then it wasn't necessarily something that went off, but through the course of writing the book and seeing that my, I loved my stepfather with all my heart and seeing that I had this incredible amount of reverence for the human being that he is. And yet he did that stuff to me made me realize he didn't see it. Mm. You know what I mean? And so nobody does. When I was going through my own ceremonies, I had this mantra that came to me and the mantra was healing me heals them. Yeah. Uh, And has that been your experience, Kyle, that in your own healing, you in some ways have given permission to the people around you to heal as well? I, I, I think that, yeah, I, I think the answer is, yeah, I, I'm going to say, I think, and then I'm going to say unequivocally, yes. Um, my experience has been this, uh, the more I heal myself, hmm. the better all my relationships are. And it feels like they're healing too, whether that's the law of attraction or I'm just more amicable. I, I haven't quite run that to ground yet. But the strong relationships, my wife and I have a relationship that, you know, it, it is something to study, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a train wreck and she's the most patient, beautiful person. And she was polished and made for me, right? But the more I heal, the more, the more affectionate she is and the more the closer we become. And I don't want to, I don't want to say she's healing too, because it could just be me. Like I could have been the barrier between all this greatness that we have in our relationship and you know, the way I, I, who knows, but it it certainly seems that she's healing too. She seems happier. What about the relationship with your kids, man? Like, um, you know, how does, how does that all work? Because you know, when I went through my stuff for a few years, you know, there was this getting integrated back in and feeling bad for what I had done and feeling bad for kind of being disappearing for a little while. Um, and in some ways I'm still looking for bridges to my kids and bridges to my wife and bridges to certain people that, you know, along the way wasn't super healthy with, uh, what was that like? What's that like for you? So there, there's no, uh, there's no real bridges to build with my daughters. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so they, they got the best version of me. I, I had my 12 year old when I was 40. I had my 10 year old when I was 42. And that that's a great version of me as far as a daddy goes. My 30 year old son, who was six years old when I went into prison, who was nine years old when I got indicted and he didn't understand it, when he thought I was getting out, he was getting a football and we were going to never be apart again. You know, like there's some deep, deep, deep abandonment issues, trauma, all that sort of stuff with him that affect our relationship. He loves me. And and I'm going to, I'm going to speak in code a little bit because it's not fair for me to say how he is or how he feels. Sure, but, sure. But there's a there's a there's a thing between us, right? That 
he certainly seems to want to forgive, right? But it's still there. Like he's not mad at me. You, you know what I mean? I and, totally, I, I really get it, man. More than you know, more than you know, I think yeah. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, and then I have another son who's 24 years old. Uh, he went through he went through the foster care system. He got adopted by somebody else. I didn't meet him. I met him at four and then I met him at 18. And so we have been off and on. I flew him out to California and um, I think we're estranged right now. I, I just, I'm at the whim of his, and, and, and he's got every right to not love me and, and not accept me as his father. And, and I have every right to miss him, right? And still have a, a Sean size hole right in the middle of my chest. But where we're at right now is we don't talk and I'm, I'm not sure if he's even alive and it hurts, yeah. right? And then my 30-year-old my is, uh, we, we talk and it's funny and we make great jokes and he loves me and respects me, but we talk twice a year, you know? And that's where that's at and I'll take it. You'll take it. For yeah. sure, because you have to meet people where they are, right? It's like you you could get out of prison, you could do all the work, have all the the come to Jesus that you had and and want the same thing for everybody else, but they're going to need they're gonna need time. They're gonna need the clarity, the the spiritual awakening that you had almost uh to to understand well, I'm not how they might be able to forgive and forget, right? I'm not entitled to his love. You're right. You know, I mean I think I get it. I think I get way more than I deserve. Like he hit what he went through is far worse than what I went through because he didn't do anything. You know what I mean? He didn't break any laws. He just lost his daddy and his mommy at a very young age and was told all kinds of stuff that he believed up till a certain age. And then it's like bullshit. Yeah. I'm not going to believe anything they're telling me anymore because it doesn't pan out. And Dylan has this, this, he's very deep. He's very deep and he's very smart. And he, it, he has this sense of, and he's always at it. My life was supposed to be different and I got ripped off, mm. you know, but, but not in a, like I'm pissed off at the world, although he's pissed off at the world. It's more like he knew what could have been even at five, you know, and it, it's just, I don't know. It's really, it's, it's otherworldly, like his sense of what he knows he missed. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know how to explain that. Well, I can explain it like this. Uh, when I went, went through my retreat on my third day, I had a healer look at me and say, you're a transitional character in your lineage. Yeah. And I said, what is, what is that? And they said, certain people come here. And from jump, they just don't feel like the people or the things around them make a lot of sense. It's a good chance that you're the person here to end the family dysfunction, to move people to the next place. And that's your role now. And so that's why me personally, that's why I have to lean into my self-care plans. That's why I have to work on my relationships. That's why I have to do all the things that I need to do to take care of myself because I'm the one that's here to move our family out of the decades of dysfunction that have been here so far. And, you know, it's quite possible that your son could feel a little bit of that too, right? He could have grown up feeling like, "Ah, this doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't, 
my my surroundings don't quite make and maybe he's the guy right he's the guy who can really put wind in his sails to say buddy you're the one like go light it up out there because you're the guy who's going to take us and and just move through all of these things does that resonate with you at all yeah yeah, I'd love to believe I'm the one that's going to do it, but uh, you are too. I think that oh, it's no, no, no. I, I right? just, you know arrogance or something silly like that. I, I've always, but but it makes a lot of sense that Dylan is. Uh, it, it certainly, I always think to myself if I could just, you know, remove one thing, like if I could one apology finally removed one thing, and he could see all this new possibility, then, then I would have done something great for the kid, but it, it doesn't seem like it's my job. And I just hope somebody comes in and says what you said in a way that resonates with him and gives him strength. And, uh, and in some crazy way, he ends up loving me <laughs> in the way that I want him to. Yeah. I yeah. hope so too. Um, I, I want to backtrack a little bit because, okay. you know, we're here to learn from you a little bit. And so we, we talked about prison. That's a thing that not a lot of people get to experience. And you notice I use the word get to, like, I don't think you would quite look at it that way, but I, you I, were I, handed <laughs> an incredible opportunity to get to know yourself, weren't you? Yeah. And, and, and it sounds like you took it. it sounds like you used it. So what can we learn from you about that time of your life? I don't, I don't know where to start to unpack that, but from the outside looking in, um, certainly there's the things that I hope people are going to garner from just this conversation, right? That it doesn't matter how far you fall, you can pick yourself back up, right? And and I can't speak for other countries. I just, I'm just going to talk about the United States of America. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen, you can get back up. It doesn't matter how unforgivable the thing was that you did. It's forgivable. It doesn't matter. Right. And that's what I hope people learn. But from my prison experience specifically, it is such a mad, crazy ball of contradictive yarn because I think to myself all the time, I got trapped in the minimum mandatory system where it was literally lock you up and throw you uh, throw away the key. People can argue all day long. Well, that's bullshit. Nonviolent drug crimes, all these other arguments. And I think to myself, it is bullshit. And it certainly is centered around making people, you know, helping advance careers and, you know, not giving a shit about human life and seeing people as unredeemable. And, And it certainly played a lot in what I felt when I walked out. But... Would I be the person I am today without it? Would I be alive if I hadn't got arrested? Would I still be a meth addict 25 years later, right? So what I needed, I got. And I think the biggest lesson inside of it all is just like ayahuasca and everything else you're going to do in your life. If you don't set intentions, if you don't go in, doesn't matter how shitty it is or how much you don't want it. If you don't set your intentions, you're at the whim of everything else that's exterior. And so in prison, my whole goal was to see how much of me I could hang on to. 
because I saw what was happening to everybody else. I heard the conversations they were having at the card tables. It was all about how do you make a bigger batch of meth? How do you rob a bank without getting caught? How do you, you know, hide a gun when you're not like, these are the conversations people are having. And the choice I made was to not ever, not only not entertain those conversations, but be the voice of reason. Are you fucking kidding me? Look around you. Is this what you want? And so I set those intentions. I went through prison. I leaned on my coaches, my teachers, my little bitty town that I grew up in. I picked the people that I felt I owed it to, to become successful because I didn't have enough self-esteem to do it for me. I still don't know if I do. So I chose the people that I was going to do it for. My stepdad, number one. Isn't that crazy? My mom. My it's not crazy and I love it and I'm glad you said it. Right. Number one, with no close seconds, I owed it to him. You know what I mean? But but I went into prison There's because no, I'm competitive. They're not going to budge me. I'm going to be the person I am. No matter how many fights, no matter how many this, that, and the others, no matter how many heartbreaks, I'm not giving in. I'm going to walk out of this thing the same dude well, not that I walked in, but the same dude I was, but my father's son was what the, was what the battle cry was, right? There's something to learn inside that for sure. Yeah. Is it, is it really strange to be in solitary confinement? I mean, can you even summarize that experience? Uh, I think it's very strange, right? I mean, the, the vast majority of people never want to be by themselves, and, and this isn't just meditating for a 15 minutes or a couple hours, right? This isn't like, let's travel within and let's deal with some shit. And then let's, you know, parachute in and get out. This is every day, same thing. Every day, 30 year sentence, every day. You know what I mean? You're still, you're still facing the same amount of trouble. And, and my mom wasn't coming to visit me, hmm. you know, I mean, and it, it's not, my mom loved me. Right. She still loves me. But this was a situation where, like I had said, I burned every bridge. So not only was I alone in a cell, I was alone in the world. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the chapters that I wrote in the book talks about the difference between being lonely and being alone. Yes. Really alone. And I experienced that. And, and it, it look, it was best thing that could have happened to me. Not that I was ever going to get out and who knows, maybe I would have gotten out and repeated it all. Right. But, um, but this wasn't just about getting off drugs. This moment was my moment that, you know, maybe I predestined before I came into the planet I don't know if you believe in reincarnation or any of that stuff, but I'm a reincarnation fan. Yes, sir. So this was the moment that was going to teach me humility, teach me weakness. I mean, you have to understand every I, football. I, I was the guy in a small town on Friday nights. Everything came easy. School came easy. Stuff came easy. And, and, I had no tool in my toolbox to to get through weakness or understand other people's. And so I needed humility. I needed to understand how people fall. And I needed to create this entire idea of love and oneness 
in my way in order for me to have the real value that I came to the planet to give. And so I think people simplistically look at that moment as, oh, that's why he doesn't do drugs anymore, right? When the truth is, is that's why I want to give so much to people. That's why I want to buy the world of Coke and teach it how to sing, right? That moment. And drugs just happened to be a thing that got me there, but it had nothing to do with the growth inside that, that solitary moment or my relationship with God or my lack of fear for death. Like, I don't want to be all false bravado and bang my chest, but the only thing I care about, and I've had a couple of scares when I think about dying is leaving those two girls. My wife's cool without me. <laughs> She's got this, but those two baby girls are going to have a daddy shaped hole in their chest. And I don't want to, I don't want to give them that. But as far as dying, I, I'm cool. I feel very similar, Kyle. I tell people I've said for most of my adult life, I'm not afraid to die. I'm a little afraid of how it's going to feel, but I'm I'm not afraid to die. I, I'm There's no question where I'm going next. There's no question what's going to happen to me next, at least in my heart and my mind. Um, but, you know, what you talk about is true. I will because I grew up without a father. I will I will be sad for my kids if it happens too soon. But outside of that, I, I, but don't you agree? And we should talk about this. Don't you agree that when you can get to that place where you're not scared to die, maybe that's what helps you live a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, 100%. Yeah. Cause I, the fear I, is gone. Look at this incredible. Like it, it, I, when I look back on it now, I couldn't see it happening, but when I look back on it now, um, the new concepts I was being introduced to, uh, from the spiritual side and all of these things. And then my, my stepdad died while I was in prison is very, very cats in the cradle, sad moment in the book. And even telling you doesn't ruin the book, but I, I, I always thought I was going to get out. We were going to grow a business together. And I always thought, you know, he was going to be there forever. And he ends up dying at like 55, you know, from cancer. And, and they hid it from me until it was too late. And he came to visit me. And, and I had to tell him goodbye over a phone that didn't work very well. So I'm in a pod around thugs, telling my dad I love him and that I'll do better when I get out and saying shit that is all weakness inside prison. And, uh, and it, it was a crazy moment. But leading up to that moment, and I didn't even know he was going to die, I had been introduced in a very profound way, not by people, by books and literature, the, the concepts of reincarnation and all of a sudden, um, who was it? Uh, the, the guy that was a medium that was on crossing over. Remember that guy, John? Oh, John Edwards? Yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. So that I, I, I was in a position where I could watch that during the day and, and, you know, him talking to spirits and my fear of death started to really dissipate. And so I was very sad when I lost my now fast forward to losing my stepdad. I was very sad, but I don't I don't have any concerns with who's gone to hell and who's gone to heaven and all that other shit that gets in the way of of real true love. Yeah. And I'm excited for the guy. Yeah. And I'm I'm uh, and I don't feel like he's ever left my side. You know, like he's in this conversation right now. I love that answer so much, man. As we kind of wind down a little bit, um, you mentioned the book a few times. You mentioned how hard it was to write. And I, 
I sort of resonate with that sentiment because when I decided to be vocal about what had happened to me as a child and what had happened to me and as an, as an adult, there is this little nag there where you feel like, oh, like you said, I'm kind of crapping on my mom's name or I'm kind of yeah. crapping on my dad's name. And it's like, you're not. These things happened and the value and the worth the, that you want to give them, that's that's on you. If If you can get yourself to a point where you say, there is no good, there is no bad, there just is okay, it happened, drop it. Let me try to let that go and move on with my life. That's the benefit of it. And I believe that if you hold on to it and you never share these stories about what happened to you, good or bad, that they stay trapped. And as long as they're inside, they have a hold on you. So how freeing, this is the question, how freeing was the book when you got it done? Uh, I mean, I I don't know how to quantify that number, but exponentially, like unbelievably, you know, I, I could throw some adverbs at it, but um, it's when I, when I finished the book. So first of all, turns out I'm not a bad writer. I didn't Good. know that. And so storytelling is my jam now. Right. I'm, and, and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to push, a lot of my chips into writing more books. That's going to be a big part of. And so um, that was cool to get on the other side of the book and say, Oh, I wrote something I'm very proud of. And now I, people are like, Oh my God's best book I ever read. And thank you. And I went against what everybody told me. So there's that piece. But, but the burden that I've been carrying around for God only knows how long that you don't even realize you're carrying it until it, it, it it's off your shoulders. Just, it, it, I felt like once the book was written, the, the real healing can start. Like certainly I was shifting paradigms and changing and adjusting who I was during the book. But now that I don't, I'm not afraid. My eyes are more open. I can really work on the shit that matters Instead of the mystery and the, uh, I don't know what word I'm looking for right now, but you you know what I mean. And it, yeah. it's it's so hard to describe, but I'm lighter, I'm I'm far more healthy, and I'm reading books now that all uh, corroborate some of this experience. Things like, um, have you ever heard of uh, the Body Keeps the Score? This is a new one that's. It's everybody and their mom should look into emotion coding. It is so real. And what he just said is a must read. Yes, I've read it. It's uh, it's everybody should, should look into that book. Well, this goes along with my forgiveness side, right? When you start to realize again, the decisions that you're making that are based on stuff you're, you're not even factoring in and in your conscious mind right. through this book, you can see kind of an elaborate version of what I said earlier. But, but, but anyway, back to, yeah, exponentially the healing, the person that I am, the, uh, you know, there's, there's still fear. There's still anger. There's still shit. I'm still human, but I, I think I've got a really good chance at separating who I really am from that and then managing it, you know, in a, in a, in a very profound, worthwhile way. So that's going to be my final question, man. It's a great place to kind of wrap this thing up for people that uh, have gone on this journey with us is to say it, it's never going away. 
the things that happen to you are always going to be there. And so I think the question that I'm going to end with today is when they show up for you, Kyle, what are some of your tools to help you deal with them? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I've got lots of them and, and I meditate a lot. Right. So I'm always looking for new tools and it really uh, awareness and consciousness is what's always going to be able to, you got to smoke this thing out, right? Whatever this thing is, you know, why do I feel this way? Da, 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 da. So if you have the ability and, and with my temper, I don't always have the ability to step back. Right. But if you can step back, become aware of the thing, right? Don't try to get rid of the emotions. And I know this is basic, but it's what's helped me. Like when I fight the emotions, when I fight the nervousness, when I fight the, I don't feel like I'm enough. When I like, nobody likes me like that shit rears its head all the time. And when I fight it, it becomes the thing that I'm fixated on. When I say there it is, it's not real, but why is it here? And I kind of just deal with it then I do spend very uncomfortable time with it, but not a week or even a day, right? So I kind of let it pass and it's really, really helpful. And, it, and you, it's it's a, a difficult, it sounds simple, but it ain't easy, right? It's, it's uh, a thing you've got to master, but it's awareness and consciousness and, and separation. God, I sound like Buddha with a. With well, listen, it's a great answer because to me, you, we we want to believe that the fix is complicated, and the fix is not complicated. The fix is simply start working with your mind, become friends with your pain, if you will, become friends with your emotions, and understand that they're going to pop up. And it's like I love what you just said. It's like, oh, there's there's abandonment. Oh, hello. Why are we feeling that today? Okay, let me spend a minute with this. Let me cycle through. Oh, yeah, of course, I'm feeling this because of that. Boom. Now I can move through it rather than sitting on it for a week or two weeks or three weeks. And then, you know, it just can go off the rails from there. So I, I love the simplicity of your answer, quite frankly, because I believe in my whole heart that that's what it is for everybody. It's really about becoming aware, start working with your mind, and then you can cycle through a few of these things. It's the pushing them off. It's the not dealing with them that's causing all of the problems. I mean, you talk about getting stage four cancer. Like that's a body that's under a lot of stress, when I look at that from the outside in, and I've, uh, you've probably heard too, there's, there's all kinds of stories that people, they get, they get really sick, they get cancer, then they get their life right and they make good choices and they clean up their environment. And all of a sudden, like the, the cancer's gone and mm-hmm. they have a, a great long life. That's not a mistake. Uh, and, and I know, you know, that more than anybody, man, I can't thank you enough for being well, on our podcast today, dude. I appreciate that. I mean, likewise, I had a good time, man. Patchwork Junkie is the name of the book, correct? Patchwork Junkie. It's on Amazon. Uh, Very proud of it. You can get it digitally. You can get it, you know, uh, a physical book. Um, Or you can go to my website. I I sign them and send them out, every single one of them. Go ahead. Shoot over the website, man. What is it? it, It's kyledeanhouston.com. We have three goals with Learn From People Who Lived It. One, to help you feel less alone. Two, encourage you to seek out a coach, a therapist, a church, 
anyone who can help you get through your journey and find some healing. Three, when you're ready, share your story with us. Find Learn From People Who Lived It wherever you get podcasts. Search it using all one word, Learn From People Who Lived It.